are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> Hi folks, Justin here with a quick word before we dive into this week's episode, and boy is it a doozy. Dave and I had the chance to sit down and chat with one of my favorite researchers into the odd and the occult, Mr. Joshua Cutchin. If you don't know, Josh has written several books on high strangeness, with Thieves in the Night, a brief history of supernatural child abduction being a primary topic of discussion during our conversation. Josh has appeared on Coast to Coast with George Norrie, Ancient Aliens, The Higher Side Chats, and a ton of other great shows. I think you'll really dig this one. So without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. I tell you what, you can tell when people send you podcasts. I have something that I call Cutchin's Law, and it's the more like front loading people do for their podcasts, the worse experience it's going to be. Like every uh-huh. time, whenever people are like, "Hey, man, you want to come on the show?" and I'm like, "Yeah, sure." Time, it's like here, let's just talk about whatever moves us. I'm like, "Okay, this is going to be a good conversation." Yeah. But when yeah. they're like, you know, talking about make sure you use head headphones and get your mic, and get, it's like just don't micromanage it. <laughs> this is not my first rodeo, so right, exactly. <laughs> We'll talk and see wherever the spirit takes us. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Well, just to break the ice, take us back in time. You're a youngster. What made you tick? Were you a reader? Were you big into films? Were you making models? Yeah, man, mostly the reading and uh, and movies. You know, I was a big I was a big creature feature kid. Oh yeah. So like anything that was a monster movie, you know, Predator, Aliens, any of that stuff was my jam. So like that naturally leads you into like Bigfoot, especially you know oh, yeah. UFOs. Not so much. I didn't really get into UFOs until probably about six or seven years ago. Really, really. But uh, yeah, uh, because because for me it was I saw the endless array of crafts and occupants crafts. The endless array of craft, singular and plural. <laughs> the endless the endless array of craft and occupants just made me say this is very old we're being multiplied unnecessarily you know i i can believe that there's one species visiting us but not 40 <laughs> and you know now here on the other side of this i i definitely see this as more of a continuum related to altered states of consciousness the other thing is that honestly despite me sort of not believing in aliens i was terrified of the whole abduction thing my dad showed me close encounters of the third kind when i was a little bit too young I couldn't even look at ultrasounds of my nephews, you know, wow. <laughs> it would like trigger me. <laughs> so, you know, well, you, you know, there's this brand of researchers who are like, that means you were abducted. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, the, <laughs> whole, the whole abduction experience is so terrifying. Like they could be giant gummy bears and it would still be just as exactly. scary. So, but, but once I figured out that the consciousness angle played a role, it was like, okay, so if this is a real phenomena, I kind of have my foot in the door as a way to defend myself, right? Some degree of sovereignty to your own consciousness. So that was sort of what got me to that point. But before that, I was way into, I wasn't a Bigfoot. I actually had a couple of Bigfoot books and I was definitely in the flesh and blood ape camp. It wasn't until I got a desk job an hour away from home at the University of Georgia and uh, I just started listening to paranormal podcasts. And that's when mm-hmm. I found out about the consciousness angle and I started getting into more of this stuff and I still like avidly listen to podcasts today i've got like a list of like 20 and i had to kind of now i have to pick and choose you know there are certain mm-hmm. ones i used to listen to all of them but now i gotta pick and choose because there's so much good stuff out there and and they're crucial for for writing books like i i my books wouldn't be half as good as they are if it wasn't for podcasts that's how you stay current on that right information like well, that's <laughs> also true you know that, that's also true so i was going back and forth to, to work and listening to these podcasts and i remember distinctly my sister-in-law bought me an amazon gift card that i used to buy j robert alley's raincoat sasquatch which is a great book it's very much in the flesh and blood camp but he has a lot of folklore in there and, and i remember reading the folklore about the bookwas which i believe is the it's either the tlingit or the quackutal and i can never remember which tribe anyway it's, it's an alaskan tribes analog for sasquatch and they said that if they give you food and you eat it, then you're trapped with the book was forever. I'm like, huh, that sounds like fairy folklore. And I said, somebody should write a book on that. And then nobody did. And I'm like, okay, I guess it's me. So (laughs) I actually, at this point, I was thoroughly hating my job. And the upside to that was that summers working a desk job at a university can be pretty dull. So I was actually able to write a lot of my first book (laughs) 
while at the <laughs> university on the university's dime. Excellent. So that book came out and I quit my job like the week that it came out, not because I thought I was going to make money at this because that's, that's a dumb reason. Don't do it if you're thinking of it, folks. But, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I wanted to focus on, on, on just being involved with my music more as opposed to working on the administrative side. So I started doing a lot more of my music and was starting to make ends meet. You know, I, I don't think it's any secret that I'm not the breadwinner of the household, but I'm finally at the point now where I'm, I'm contributing my fair share, which feels really good. And the books are finally starting to actually be a, a crucial component of that too not just the music right before we go too deep we gotta touch on your musical career because you mastered tuba pretty young how did the interest arise were your parents musically inclined at all not really you know my sister was in the color guard of the marching band so i got drugged to all those marching band competitions and it was just an assumption that i would be in the marching band and i originally sort of wanted to play trombone and, and my band director said you know you're a big guy and i need tuba players to so play tuba so <laughs> that's how i wound up on a tuba and i had a certain aptitude for it and i took that all the way to graduate school which was at uga the university of wisconsin for my undergrad and the university of georgia for my graduate work and uh, had some facial problems that have since cleared up but at the time it was a real hindrance to my playing and i was able to shift that degree i came in there as a performance major and was able to shift that to a music literature degree which is sort of like a musicology degree not super Mm. useful but i was able to at least keep a fellowship but you know along with that came this this uh because i was having these chop problems and i was talking to the tuba professor there who was a real mensch he's a great guy i said you know i said the only thing i wish i i never got to do that i really wish i could have done was play in a new orleans style brass band he's like well the, the problems that you're having nobody would notice and if they did they wouldn't care in that style so i'm like okay i'll do that and of course that's been my trajectory is doing just mostly jazz work now and you know here i am some what 12 years later i guess and i'm one of the first call jazz tuba players in atlanta it's not a big pool (laughs) it's not a big pool (laughs) it was definitely a hill to climb and i'm proud that i did and all my face problems are gone and i'm enjoying what i do a lot more hell yeah who were some of the musicians that sort of inspired you to go that route Oh man. So, so, you know, I was really involved in the classical thing for a long time. There's some real rock stars on the tuba that are out there, believe it or not. So this is really interesting because nobody ever asked me these questions. <laughs> it's like getting Stan Friedman in an interview and asking him actually about nuclear fission. You know, those are always <laughs> like, no, Stan, don't talk about UFOs. Talk about this other thing. <laughs> I think that there's this complex that a lot of tuba players have where we're often the butt of jokes. And like, there's this idea that we can't play fast and we can't play high notes and we're really simple. So I think that the community is really overcompensated in a pretty remarkable way and you look at some folks like who are out there right now like Sergio Carolino, Oystein Bodzvik from uh, from Norway, Pat Sheridan in the US. Those are all seminal figures. Someone who was a huge influence on my playing and my concept of what a tuba could do was uh, Sam Palafian who was a teacher at uh, Arizona State University for a number of years before his passing back in I believe 2019 or maybe yeah 2019. So those were a lot of the sounds but you know I, I grew up in a household where we didn't really listen to classical music but we listened to a ton of film scores and uh, that was I think a really crucial thing for me but i always i tend to tended to gravitate more over the years i had a girlfriend once who said that like, everything you listen to is brass band music and i'm like not not really and, and we went through my my ipod and at, at the time and she was pointing out how most of what i played was still i still had that same feel and that same groove you know so mm. like a lot of funk stuff a lot That's of stuff like soul. that yeah. Now I, I did have a I did have a very strong Jimmy Buffett phase in, in high school <laughs> through through part of my college years. And you know, I, I think that was because if you look at the band, his band in like the nineties, early two thousands, was like a fifteen person band. Ooh, you know? and, wow. and you and you had all these different colors that the band was able to play with. You had steel drums and guitar and bass, auxiliary percussion, tenor were uh, saxophone, trombone, sorry, sorry, sax, sax, trumpet, backup singers, and piano, and just all these different colors, which I think were really fun probably a big influence on me too i I tend to prefer music where i can hear all the parts moving Mm. you know uh, so my good friend soraya azkaf from where did the road go um is a huge fan of metal and i've just never been able to get into metal no offense to either of you if you're into it but but i appreciate music written by musicians if someone took the time (laughs) to write it i'm gonna listen to it and that's fair like i'll still still listen to it but i i just i'll still listen to it but i don't own any albums you know so there there are certain styles that i gravitate towards more than others but i would was, um, I think I heard my first New Orleans style brass band because you know there's the British style brass band that's very you know 
yeah, ta, ta, ta. <laughs> um, but I, I heard my first New Orleans style brass band. It was uh, on a, actually a, as on actually a, a Jimmy Buffett album. He had these uh, albums that he would put out. He used to have these. He has these Margaritaville restaurants, and they would release albums of like the bands that would play there at the mm-hmm. end, like a mix a mix album. And his New Orleans album had a Rebirth Brass Band on there, and I remember putting it on, and it just just opened up a whole new world to me. And that's again now that's that's the style I pre- predominantly play and compose in now. Have you had a chance to get back on stage since the whole COVID has been a started man this past october was like the busiest october i've had since i've been playing in atlanta I think people are people are hungry for it you know mardi gras and oktoberfest are my two busiest times of year because <laughs> i play tuba right it's either yep. german or it's right. new orleans it's your time um, to shine yeah exactly yeah it's, it's been pretty steady the last two months have kind of been a little bit a little bit slow but that's partially by choice for me because i just i was so i was playing like 12 dates in october which for somebody somebody who just plays tuba and doesn't double on trombone or double on bass that's a that's a lot of playing <laughs> that's a lot of people wanting tuba players so <laughs> i was like okay I'm, I'm actually gonna finally take the horns to the shop and get them cleaned and get them overhauled and i'm gonna take a little bit of time off but you know it's interesting my, my concept of myself has really shifted over the past actually since the pandemic pandemic you know i used to think of myself as musician author and now i think of myself as an author first and, and a musician second because you know I, I i haven't relaxed or grind with my musician friends a lot of them have been saying oh no i hope there's not, not another lockdown and this and that and they're just sort of sitting around whining about it and practicing all of 2020 and i'm like look if, if you can go through what we just went through and not see how fragile your profession is and not double down on a on something else that you love or like create something else that you love i don't know what to tell you and at the end of the day i think it makes you a good person to have multiple things that you're interested and in, competent at you were born in north carolina obviously david and mm-hmm. i are in south carolina born and raised oh um, where else aiken it's close to augusta <laughs> yeah right on the yeah border. I'm personally out in Edgefield, but it's still Aiken County, whatever. You know. I just drove through there back in September. Yep, you might have drove past us. <laughs> so obviously the Southeast is rich with folklore, with cryptids and such. So I'm just wondering what regional stories that you grow up on. Maybe we share a few. You know, I don't really know if I grew up on any per se. I mean, North Carolina's got plenty of stuff happening, especially in the part that I grew up in, West North Carolina, sort of above Charlotte. I'm like Norman, but you know, you mentioned that you're close to Aiken or you're, you're in Aiken. How, how close are you to Bishopville? I definitely go through there. I can take you there. Like, I well, don't... You, know, <laughs> well, you know, that's one thing that, you know, you grew up here. I, I did grow up hearing about like the lizard man. I didn't really know yeah. what to think of it. And I kind of thought of it. At, at some point, if I'm being honest, I probably thought of it in the same way that I, I thought of a lot of the alien stuff. It's like, oh, there's not, you know, there's nothing in the fossil record that looks like a lizard man. But now, you know, if, if this thing is, if this phenomena is coupled to imagination, like I think it is, then anything's possible. And what we've learned, if it's real in your brain, that's as real as it needs to get. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is something that I've been, I've been banging the drum about a lot is that, you know, the last, we're, we're a culture that's so concerned with, and rightly so, with treating victims appropriately and listening to their concerns and giving them attention unless they're alien abductees right (laughs) or unless they've seen a monster yeah and at the end of the day like one of two things well one of three things is true they're a liar which i i don't think i think we i think we vastly overestimate the number of hoaxes that happen i do think that there are a lot of people who are either experiencing mental distress or or misidentification or the things or or they really saw what they think they saw and in those latter two categories, there's still the trauma is real. Who knows if what they saw was quote unquote real in the same way, but the trauma is real. So we, we should be a lot more, I think, forgiving towards those people. But yeah, I think that the whole dichotomy that we set up between reality and uh, imagination is is sort of a misnomer. But yeah, I, 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 I remember growing up hearing about things like Lizard Man, and, and I, I finally got the chance a couple of years ago to drive through Bishopville, which is not doing great, like a lot of small towns in the South, especially mm-hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of closed storefronts. But I... <laughs> I did. My wife and I, this was before the boys were born, my wife and I did stop at the South Carolina Cotton Museum, <laughs> which, which is, well, well, that's where they, ha- that's where they have, like, well, that, that's where they have, like, the few things that are actually, like, Lizard Man artifacts, like mm-hmm. the casts and stuff. That's where they, that's where those are housed. And so I go in, it's like, you could tell this guy, he was so, he's so sweet, right? But you could tell that like, nobody had come in in, like, two weeks. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, probably long. So we come in, and, like, I was, we were on the way to the beach, and I just wanted to pop in, see the Lizard Man tracks. I think they have like a piece of the shack that was in the soybean field where the lizard man was seen him on one occasion and like just get out right get in get out <laughs> and he was so excited this poor guy takes us on a personal tour of the cotton museum <laughs> so i learned all about boll weevils and <laughs> looms and all this stuff and at the 
end, he doesn't even mention the lizard man stuff, right? Ah. It's, at the, it's at the end. It's at the end of the museum. At the end of the the little route that he takes you to the museum. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, looking over to the side. And I said, oh, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's just something about the lizard man. <laughs> just so, like, Oh, interesting. Let me look. Of course, that's <laughs> that was like, a good impression. Uh, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure he noticed that those are the only things that I was taking photos of were the Wonder <laughs> Man footprints. And the footprints look goofy, by the way. You know, I'm not sure that there isn't a hoax at the heart of that. But again, with the way that I think of things now, I think that hoaxes can actually draw in legitimate phenomena too. So, good point. Yeah. I was introduced to your work through THC. I believe David and I both were, were listeners of Greg and had Greg on. Specifically during the Thieves in the Night episode, you mentioned that you feel it's important to approach these topics with some sort of academic standard. I couldn't agree more. So specifically, how do you determine which information to include and exclude in your books? It's a good question. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people hear that and say like, you know, oh, academic snootiness, but there really is a lot of, for me, it's just really about saying where you got stuff from, right? You know, and it's sort of become, I guess, part of my brand is that I have, you know, a ton of end notes and a ton of references, but like, I just, I want people to see where it's from because it's also sort of insurance, right? If something turns out to be a hoax, you can say, well, that's where I read it. I just wrote down what I read, you know, (laughs) or wrote down what I heard, you know, it's up to you to sort of make that cut. I mean, I think caveat emptor, buyer beware with all this stuff, right? But I think a a big, a big part of that is looking at reports and and after over some time, you get sort of a sense for things, you know, I tend to, I have have a couple of rules of thumb. Generally speaking, if there's a case that's pretty normal and cut and dry, but there's some sort of really weird high strangeness aspect to it, then I go, okay, there's probably something to that because I think that high strangeness is, is a really a, a, an integral part of these phenomena. So like, whereas most people would toss those out, I say, well, no, that actually kind of strengthens it for me because if you're going to make up a story about UFOs, you're not going to include three foot tall plaid rabbits sitting in your garage. You know, <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. not something they're going to throw in there. Real case, by the way. So that's part of it. And then, but at the same time, when people get really elaborate with their cosmology when they start saying, you know, the Zebulganubians from Antares 5 have been at war with the Snarflax for 1,500 years. I'm like, okay, it's starting to sound like Star Wars, you know? (laughs) And I'm not saying that's not a possibility, but that's generally the stuff that I stay away from. At the same time, you know, I think that it's important to look at stuff that you don't like and stuff that does make you uncomfortable not necessarily like existentially uncomfortable but just stuff and stories that you don't want to stories that you don't want to go into you know like so right. for example a lot of my work focuses on the the, inter, the intersection of fairies and ufos and i'm like okay well that's all fine and good what about alien implants is there something like that in fairy lore I, I didn't see anything at the time there is but i didn't see anything at the time and i think a lot of people would have pulled away from that i'm like no let's lean into that and see what we can find there and if, and if you can get to the bottom of that well and it's dry then at least you tried you know so Actually, the project that I'm working on is about a topic that I have historically really hated, which is stories of people believing that they're reincarnated extraterrestrials and people who say that before I was born, I was on a spaceship and stuff like that. Man, those stories make my turtles, my turtles, my toes curl. <laughs> they make my toes curl in my in my shoes and not in a good way, you know? <laughs> like, I'm like, like ooh, easy. I, I kind of cringe. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not like I am a Christian, but it's not even for those reasons. It's just because they sound so new agey and, and they just sort right. of... I'm just sort of not comfortable with that. So I'm like, okay, well, these stories aren't going away. You have to find some way to reconcile those. And it's been a really rewarding experience in this sense. Are there any of those stories that you are considering? Like, are there any that made you take another look at them? I found a way to make it work in my in my head as sort of a, a sneak peek into what I'm, what I'm writing about. I, I think the whole alien-human hybrid thing might be a sneak peek into the reincarnation process, you know, that these things are sort of the gardeners of the ecology of souls you know they're, mm. they're pruning the bushes and they're planting new seeds and stuff either we're shown something that looks sciencey or we're taking our own expectations and grafting that onto what we're seeing because we can't otherwise reconcile what it is but you know there are a lot of silly stories in regards to that stuff you know actually the epilogue of this book is just going to be me sitting down and being honest with the reader and being like i don't know what to do with this in my own personal <laughs> in my own personal faith and my you know because I, I am very much inclined to believe that this stuff exists but at the same time how do i square that with being intellectually honest about my own uh, personal beliefs you know i think it's important so those are all big factors you've also sort of got to get a feel for the the, the way that certain stories play out it's just a, a fact of the matter that stories from latin america are typically typically bonkers. And I don't mean that disparagingly, and I don't mean that to say that they're not truthful. I think that cultures that have more room for magic in their day-to-day lives and cultures that are less averse to those ideas simply 
get more extreme versions of what we see. Similarly, you know, a lot of the stories from after the fall of the Berlin Wall, all those Eastern Bloc countries have just the craziest stories. Albert Rosales has compiled a lot of those in his humanoid database, and they're just absolutely bonkers. And I'll be honest, some of them, I'm like, this is bonkers in a good way. And some of them, like, this is bonkers in a bad way. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's just, you know, a lot of times, whether or not I include a story just sometimes comes down to me being like, okay, well, this this, this account is like four pages long and is really complicated. I'm just going to leave it out. It might, might be proving a good point, but it's just a little bit too, you know, elaborate. For, right. my, for my for my purposes. We're kind of tiptoeing on this subject here, Josh, so let me ask you this. Since you've been traveling the Fortean path, is there a subject that you've changed your stance on over the years when presented with evidence to the contrary? The biggest one to me is the flesh and blood Bigfoot thing. It's another one of those things that I, I guess I, I guess my co-author <laughs> Timothy sort of pushed me into it, but <laughs> man, I, I, want, I want Bigfoot to be a flesh and blood creature, you know? And you think it a, isn't? Well, I think that there's a lot of great evidence in support of it being a flesh and blood creature. You've got these footprints that manifest things like dermal ridges like you have on your, your fingerprints. Um, you've got these footprints that show specific aspects of primate anatomy like mid-tarsal breaks. Jeff Meldrum has done great work on this stuff that really does all sound like it's we're dealing with an ape. You know, there's a this phenomena called pillow erection or pilo erection where the hair on an ape when it's agitated will stand up on end. And some people have reported that in Bigfoot encounters. And yet, at the same time, you have... Bigfoot alongside UFOs, Bigfoot inside UFOs, Bigfoot. A question yeah. on Bigfoot. I mean, it's interrupt you. Just since yeah. you mentioned UFOs as well, I've heard accounts on Bigfoot being, say, interdimensional. He's here, but he's not. I mean, that's that's the thing. Once you end up going down this weirder route with Bigfoot, it lets you engage with some of these really quite cogent skeptical arguments about, like, you know, people will say, well, we don't often find bear carcasses and cougar carcasses, so we don't find a Bigfoot carcass. I'm like, yeah, but people have people have seen those things people have shot those things people have unambiguous video of those things and yeah people say that they see bigfoot stepping into portals i don't i don't like that idea it sounds really strange but these (laughs) stories but these stories don't go away you know the books that i authored with timothy renner are called where the footprints end and based off the phenomena that happens quite frequently of a track of bigfoot prints that lead into a field and they just stop and you know the cryptozoologists will say oh well the bigfoot carry around a branch with them and they sweep up behind them or they or they tiptoe backwards through their tracks and it's like come on man like <laughs> i've heard they come to our dimension it's not safe for them to have their children there like they come here to have them and that's why we see them like maybe more frequently in certain times and such i mean that's an interesting idea maybe earth is a is a bigfoot nursery you know or maybe they just, or maybe they just come here to take a dump because they don't want to do it in <laughs> yeah, you're right um, <laughs> But 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 you, but you have I mean like Timothy and I wrote two big thick books I think it's probably around one hundred sixty thousand words total between the two volumes of just weird stuff things that Bigfoot do that are right out of European fairy folklore and people have missing time in conjunction with Bigfoot which you know is typically a UFO thing but there's one podcaster Wes Germer from Sasquatch Chronicles very popular podcast and I really admire him because he really changed his tune eventually from being like making fun of people who talked about Bigfoot being weird into eventually coming to grips with it and I'll never forget one of his earlier episodes he's talking about his initial sighting with his brother which is quite harrowing where there are these bigfoot who are bounding across the road and like circling their car up on i think it was a mount yeah colt or it's in washington state and he in, in the episode this is when he was still in the flesh and blood camp he says you know the only thing i can't figure out is that we should have been up there for 30 or 40 minutes tops and when we got down to the mountain it said that three hours had gone by <laughs> and i'm like dude that's missing time i don't know what yeah. to tell you and, you know the co-host of his at the time was like well when you're in a stressful situation time <laughs> tends to speed up i'm like no that's literally what that's literally the opposite of what scientific studies have shown like (laughs) time slows down when you're when you're freaked out you know that that was a big one for me the missing time component and it's not just that one i've i've found other cases as well missing time component in bigfoot encounters is really strange you know people will have amnesia of of bigfoot encounters to say nothing of bigfoot phasing through things and snap you know vanishing out of sight uh, mm-hmm. There's just a lot of oddities and a lot of the explanations, a lot of the explanations from the cryptozoologists don't make sense. Just as, you know, a lot of the explanations from the skeptics on the other side of the fence don't make sense. So what do you do? You just got to sit in the middle of them and be like, guys, I think you both got it wrong. <laughs> right, right. 
On the subject of fairy folklore, for our listeners, can you break down what your intentions were with Thieves in the Night and what were some of your most compelling findings? My first impulse was to write something that scared me because none of my books have been really scary. And I think the idea of supernatural child abduction is pretty terrifying. (laughs) Agreed. With artwork to match by Sam Sheeran. That stuff still gives me the willies. So that was partially that. Part of it was trying to reconcile the alien hybrid program how that could possibly fit through a fairy folklore lens because honestly I can take pretty much anything that you read in an alien abduction account and find a precedent for it in fairy folklore and vice versa you know so how do you reconcile alien hybrids within that model right so that's part of it and the other thing was to have sort of a one-stop shop for changeling folklore so in case anybody doesn't know who's listening changelings are a belief that uh, the fairy folk would abduct a human child and replace it with something else typically a fairy infant an elderly fairy or a stock which is like, you know, a piece of a log that's cloaked to look like a human child. There really wasn't a resource in English, at least in English in print, at least for that sort of body of folklore. So that was another primary goal for me. You know, a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, some people had pointed out in the past that these changelings, you know, they're always described as having big heads and being scrawny and listless and eating and eating, but never being filled and crying. A lot of people had pointed out similarities between these changelings and the hybrid babies, especially in the baby presentation, right? So an abductee is taken and they're sperm and eggs sperm or eggs are harvested and supposedly combined with an alien and then it's put back into the mom and then they take the fetus and they grow it up on the spaceship and then they bring the abductee back and they show it they should say here's here's your baby right right people have made a lot of these comparisons to changelings over the years in terms of the way that these hybrids look but you know the more that i kept on unpacking that stuff the richer it became for example you have there's two researchers who are somewhat controversial but that's not really the point the point is the way that this motif is expressing itself put abductees hands under blacklight. He had they had a bunch of abductees that they're working with and whenever they'd have an experience they'd say, Don't wash your hands, come in. We're gonna look at your hands under black light. Again, I don't know if this is scientifically sound. I'm interested in the way that it's it's sort of echoing itself in a <laughs> mythopoetic sense. They, you know, luminesce their hands with the black light and they found that people who had inter- had alien abductions would have certain things certain spots on their hand glow in certain ways. But those who had handled or held hybrid babies would have their hands glow a violet pink color. Interestingly enough, that's the same shade that chlorophyll glows under black light. And interestingly enough, as I alluded to earlier, the stock, whenever fairies would replace a baby with a stock, it was a log. Like it was, it was a, it was a plant, right? <laughs> so that aspect really sort of reflecting itself. I'm not saying that aliens are plants. I'm not saying that even any of this stuff is real in the sense that we would accept it, but it's, there's a certain consistency and a certain rhyming to the way that it expresses itself. I mean, even the term stock, if you look at it etymologically and what it means, it not only means plant, but it also means a plant that's been horticulturally pruned and hybridized with another plant so even even the old fairy term sort of speaks to this hybridization agenda and again you know the same reason that fairies would would abduct children and place replace changelings in the first place was often for the exact same things that aliens say you know time and again you hear in alien abductions you know we can't have children anymore we need human genetic material to sort of you know improve the quality of our bloodlines and like literally like almost word for word that's exactly what you find in a lot of these old fairy books as well so not saying that aliens are fairies or fairies are aliens but i I think they're the same phenomena and we just the words that we use to describe whatever this is really depend on the culture that the phenomena manifests itself in that same interview you said something else i found very interesting that when a child was exchanged for a changeling it doesn't necessarily manifest physically it's more of an internal change like you turn around now your child is back now you're kind of tiptoeing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're tiptoeing on the changeling phenomena, kind of mirroring accounts of demonic possession. Am I way off? No, I think that's fair enough. And that's something that I've been looking into a little bit more lately. You know, you'll often hear these changelings. There's some explicit accounts, I think from Lady Gregory, where she, there was a household of uh, women and, and one of the children that was in the house, they believed was a changeling, but also had the soul of someone who had died in the house inside of it. And they said, oh, he died his first death. Now he's going to die his second death in, in the body of this child, which ties into this idea that, you know, fairies were very much associated with the dead. I mean, we tend to think of them as these little pixies and what not, but that's very much a well that's very much a victorian era children's book idea but the idea of fairies being nature elementals or something is pretty much an idea that comes out of theosophy and madame blavatsky in that tradition before that if communities really paid any attention to fairies at all in that sense they would associate them with the dead and again you find that all throughout the literature <laughs> not that fairies were always the dead but they, they, they they're always like alongside the dead and sometimes they were the dead and it's just there's there's a relationship there so it does seem to me like maybe we're dealing with something reincarnation gone wrong in some of these cases and 
And mm. specifically to the idea of demonic possession, fairies were demonized as well, just like the church, you know, demonized everything. But that, that also seems to be a possibility as well. But yeah, you'd have these stories where you know, people would turn their backs and turn right back around and it would be a changeling, which seems so instantaneous. It doesn't seem like you've got a physical creature swooping in and, right. and you know, and grabbing children and taking them away. And, say, and, and by the same token, you know, you rarely ever saw changelings returned, right? Like you basically the way that you would get your child back and this is this is horrible but you basically abuse them because the idea was that the fairies would see one of their own being abused and would rush in to rescue them and you know return your child which obviously this was a way to justify infanticide i have to uh i always have to cite this statistic there's a scholar by the name of elaine farrell who did a survey of infanticide in ireland just between 1850 and 1900 So a 50-year period, just children under three years old, and she found 4,645 cases of of infant murder or of toddler murder, child murder. You know, so if they were three years in one day, (laughs) she didn't include them in her survey. And you just hear those stats, and this is an island, you know, the size of like Indiana, right? Like this is not a huge place. The changeling mythos was definitely used to justify that sort of behavior. Usually, you 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 know you'd abandon a changeling, or you it would again it would leave your sight, and then suddenly it would be restored again. You know that sudden onset child theft that I was describing earlier does sound like it's describing certain developmental disabilities that manifest in the first months or so of life. And there is a strong strong line of scholarship in modern medical. I guess, medical folklore that these uh, changeling stories were describing developmental disabilities. And you look at some of the stories and some of them are an exact match. And in the book, I, I sort of outlined, because nobody knows exactly what it was. You know, people will say, oh, changelings were autistic children. Doesn't always fit. You know, that doesn't fit a lot of the deformities, for lack of a better term, that that you find in some of these changeling stories. So there are really like about, I, I think I think in the book, I have like 10 different conditions that people have proposed over the years, each with their own different sets of strengths and weaknesses. And that's obviously what was going on in some of these cases, especially when you couple it with the infant decide because if you have a disabled child and you've got you know a family of 10 and they're not going to be ever be able to attend the fields like it was a financial decision as as callous as that sounds at the same time there are some scholars who say well this is all fine and good until you run into these stories which are not infrequent where once the changeling's identity was revealed it would say something it would be like oh i've been caught or something (laughs) A, a, a common story that you hear is this idea of one of the ways that you could get rid of your changeling would be to engage in some sort of absurd activity and one of the common absurdities that people would engage in was they would sit about claiming that they were brewing beer in eggshells or something right and and the changeling would be looking at them and this is the idea that the changeling was an elderly fairy and the changeling would be looking at them and eventually just be so curious they would have to ask the mother what she was doing and then they would reply oh you know well i was i was an old man before the ac- before the uh, acorn was an oak and i've never seen a brewery of in eggshells in my whole life so they would remark on something and then they would be outed and then have to you know be they have <laughs> gotcha. to go back they have to go back to fairyland to make of those stories i think that i think that a lot of what and this is sort of where the book goes i think that a lot of what this hinges upon is a real misunderstanding of what it means to be mentally ill you know or developmentally disabled obviously there's a medical component to it i don't think that's the case. i don't think arguing otherwise is sensible but if you look at people who are say for example schizophrenics there is quite popular line of thought that's actually encouraging schizophrenics to engage with the voices in their head and believe it or not a lot of these people improve <laughs> when they actually start engaging with the voices in their head so the question is what is that that they're that they're engaging with and i think that's probably if, if i really had to commit to it and i don't really want to because <laughs> it's so it's so convoluted but i think that's probably where i would fall with changelings is that yes it's sort of a yes and model like yes these might have been autistic children but what are autistic children inter- interfacing with how are they seeing the world which you know i realize some people find it distasteful because you're playing into this idea that disabilities are superhero abilities and that's that's not quite what i'm saying i'm not saying these people's lives are any easier or necessarily even better but that they're seeing the world in a way and and breaking through a part of reality that we can't in you know those of us who have not experienced those same illnesses so josh when it comes to the home of the fairies would you say that your research points more towards a physical or non-physical location non-physical i mean you know so there you have these well it's a lot like the ufo thing right you have something that manifests a lot of attributes that are physical and non-physical but again i think that our ideas of physical and non-physical are all backwards looking back to bigfoot you know there was a 
a researcher whose work I really admire, but he said, obviously Bigfoot's flesh and blood because ghosts don't leave footprints. And I'm like, have you read any parapsychological literature from the 19th century? Like that was one of the main ghost hunting methods, right? You'd put talcum powder on the floor and wait to find footprints, you know, where no one should be there. Like that was a thing. You know, the same thing with sci phenomena. If sci phenomena is real, and that's the one hill that I will die on, is that there have been some really, really good laboratory experiments by people like Dean Raiden and Rupert Sheldrake. So, something that suggests that things like telepathy and, and whatnot are, are real. Then you have the, the non-physical mental aspect able to make an impact upon our physical reality, right? So I think that the UFO is kind of doing the same thing, but I also think that, you know, the, the fairies kind of do the same thing. Yes, there are fairy shoes that people have found that are charmingly made out of mouse leather <laughs> and fairy flags and fairy chalices, but I don't think that necessarily points to a physical or a solely physical reality like we would conceptualize. Now, this is where people will jump in and say things like interdimensionality, and I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to fight you over that. I, I think that a lot of the way people think of dimensions is they think of it like a place you can go. And if you've you know, read the thought experiment of Flatland, you know the two-dimensional guy on the page, when your finger comes down and touches the page, he sees a circle. He can't, but it doesn't mean that your hand is a different place. It's just a, a dimension that he can't perceive. So I think dimensions are kind of, whenever people start talking about dimensions, what they're really talking about about is the other world right they're talking about mm. fairyland you know they're talking about spirit world whatever you want to call it so I, I think that that's sort of what we're seeing with the fairy stuff and i think that just as fairies were sometimes the dead and sometimes not fairyland is sometimes the afterlife and sometimes isn't as well but it shares a lot of similarities with what we see in near-death experiences which is another in my opinion pretty much ironclad area of research as well. If that's by way yeah. of answer. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, where do you think that psychedelic experiences fit in the non-physical picture? I'm on this kick now, and I, I would hope that if you asked me in six years that I'd be on a different idea. But like, I'm sort of this idea right now that fairyland is the near-death realm, is the is the DMT space, is the shamanic initiation space, is the alien abduction space. Like, I think that a lot of those it's all things... all around us here. Right? They're just so many overlaps and again that's the project that i'm working on right now is just is just cataloging these extensive overlaps you know people who have all all these experiences come back with enhanced psi abilities and they have poltergeist phenomena and all these different things and they describe a lot of the same motifs and a lot of the same phenomena i'm partially of, the, of that idea but an idea that i i'm really loving playing with so if if i take psilocybin and i feel like i'm someplace else and i'm seeing something i mean this is a better this is better with dmt right because there's a real sense of like going somewhere with dmt right i'm i'm going into that realm and then they react and i kind of wonder if when we see things in our world if it's not them smoking dmt in another <laughs> realm or them being shamans or you know any number of things and now I you're asking the questions i think that's a really cool idea yeah. because you know i think it's a big terrence mckenna thing where he says like you know the only reason that we don't think that our current reality is psychedelic is because we live in it day to day you know and if if we had lived in my case 36 years in you know, the DMT space, would it seem as natural as, as this world does? So conceivably to something from that other realm, this world would look really trippy as well, which I mean, if you read these accounts, like you find that time and again, that these things are always surprised to see us, right? Like they always do double takes and they're surprised that you can, they can be seen and they, they freak out. So it's, it's almost kind of like they're doing the same thing in whatever that other world is. Obviously, we talked to a lot of filmmakers and actors here as well, Josh, uh, and you're working on fairy films. We folk on the big screen. I wanted oh. to ask you what you guys, what uh, films you guys were covering, if you could talk about it. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I have to open up the folder so I can remember, <laughs> so I can remember what, we're, what we're talking about. But uh, it's coming out should be coming out next month. It's been been uh, on the shelf for a little while now. The original mandate of the project was to talk about movies that didn't seem like they were fairy movies, but to show that they were. And about half of the SAS took that approach and half of the SAS took took uh, the approach of, of films that were explicitly fairy films and just sort of elaborated on them. Some some people that I really admire took that approach. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell them not to. So Dark Crystal's in there, Labyrinth's in there. There's a great essay by Simon Young, who's one of my... Uh, who's one of my fairy scholar folk heroes <laughs> about the Disney representation of fairies and sort of like actually giving them their due because it's very common and fairy among fairy researchers to sort of bash on Disney fairies. So he's like saying, <laughs> well, hang on a minute. There's something, you know, there's something worth uh, considering here. I wrote on a foreign film called Borgman, 
which I don't know if you've seen it, but I, have um, not. I would argue that the only way, because a lot of people, when they saw it, it came out, it was actually a best, best, best foreign film nominee. I, I know, I know a lot of people, I read a bunch of, re, a bunch of reviews of it and they were like, this movie doesn't make any sense. It doesn't ever come together. And I'm like, it doesn't, unless you view it through the fairy lens and then it all just really snaps into place. And I, I suspect looking at some of the stuff that the, the director said, I suspect that he was on that on that line of thought we have somebody who, who wrote on dune the old dune right <laughs> somebody did an essay on rocky horror picture show some other some other smaller like b movie fairy stuff that, that has, that's come out as well it will be in there there's an essay on twin peaks so it's really exciting it's a really eclectic group of folks and a lot of people that i admire uh, that i was able to work with so i'm really excited about it that should be like i said coming out in january of 2022 <laughs> awesome i'm gonna be looking at that so have you yourself had any experiences that you would consider paranormal, supernatural, etc.? Yeah, I mean, so my most exciting stuff has been ghost stuff. We, I was, I was, I think, a sophomore in college, and I visited Stonewall Jackson's home, which was in the Civil War used as as a hospital. I remember distinctly, there's, to get to the second floor, you have to go up this very narrow staircase, right? Like, there's no way two people could fit on it at once, right? Super narrow. And I got to the top of the stairs, and uh, I was with my, with, with my, uh, with my family, and I looked out over the, the group that was upstairs, because one group had to wait while the other group came up, and then the other group would come down. Uh, in the middle of the group was this boy, probably 14 or 15, sunken cheeks in a Confederate outfit. And I, I thought that he was just, you know, I thought that he was LARPing, right? You know, I thought that he was cosplaying. And I made a remark to my to my mom about him, like, man, that kid was into it, wasn't he? And she was like, who are you talking about? And nobody had seen, you know, nobody had sold a ticket to a kid in a Confederate <laughs> uniform that day. So I guess in hindsight, it was a ghost, but it was just super, super normal. Recently, about a year ago, I guess, we started having some raps in this house that coincided with the time of my wife's grandmother's passing. She heard them a lot more than I did. I heard them as well, but she heard them a lot more than I did. We confirmed on the child monitors that it was not a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> Had a guy come out and check for, like all the, all the horror movie stuff, right? Had yeah, a guy yeah. come out and check for check for pests, <laughs> no pests. And even then I was like, it's, it's not, yeah, not pests. It it only it happens every now and then my wife says i haven't heard it but it only really stopped after i had a dream and in the dream i was at my childhood home and i was in the upstairs kitchen and there's a space above the sink that's kind of like the space above the sink that we have and i was talking to this like seven or even eight foot tall black dude and i was so excited in the dream i was like you know man i i i, I finally get to talk to you what what do you what do we need to do and he said his name was shibalba which of course is the Mayan underworld, I believe. And looking back on this, I'm like, why do you say his name was Shibab? Oh, that's right. Spirits don't give away their names, right? Like that's a that's a big no no. Once you give away your name, something somebody can have power over you, right? So like, so he said his name was Shibab, and that he wanted black licorice. And I woke up the next morning, and I'm like, am I going to do this? And I'm like, Josh, if you were writing about somebody who didn't do this, you'd think they were an idiot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I so I did it. I did it, and it stopped. But also, you know, I do think that a lot of it was focusing around my wife and the fact that it coincided with her grandmother's passing uh, when she was in the hospital I think is very significant as well also the fact that one night my wife was up listening to it at 2 a.m and she found out that like five of the six grandchildren were all awake at the same time that implies that there was something genuinely anomalous to it I had a girlfriend who drugged me on a ghost hunting investigation to Waverly Hills sanitarium some light phenomena not like orbs of light but like light that was coming around the corner it was like it looked like someone had a tv on and you'd turn the corner and there will be nothing there and a door slammed like right in my face <laughs> like I was so it, it like I was walking and the door was on my right on my right hand side and once I got within six feet of it it went from completely shut to slamming open so hard that it hit the wall and like boom like completely open like somebody kicked it from the other side about crap my pants and since then it's it's been kind of on and off the biggest things that I've had have been synchronicities lately but you know synchronicities are like dreams like they mean a lot to you but most people their eyes glaze over you start to yeah. tell synchronicities you know it, 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 it's 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 tailor-made for you I do have two kind of little Bigfoot things, but they're not, I've never seen Bigfoot. One of them, very quick, I was with my co-author at one of his research sites, Site 7, is what he calls it, and nothing happened the entire time except for the first night when we got there. Within, I'd say, probably about three minutes of getting out of the car, something in the woods huffed and walked away on what sounded like two feet. Could have been a deer. It didn't sound like a whitetail to me, but it could have been a whitetail grunt. And then... 
on my honeymoon in North Georgia, I was being a, a drunken ass the last night there. And I was, um, it was, it was, it was North Georgia. And it was sort of overlooked a valley for all intents and purposes. And I was like, this was before I was even into Bigfoot. So I was like, I'm going to make some Bigfoot whoops. And I made a bunch of whoops. And the next morning we were getting ready to leave and I'm packing some stuff up and my wife's taking some lighter stuff out of the car. And she says, why'd you do that? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And she said, The Rock. And I'm like, I still have no idea what you're talking about. And I go out and behind, like, like almost wedged behind my one of my rear tires is a rock about the size of a basketball. I looked, didn't seem to have come from the, the hillside that we were on because all those rocks were covered in red clay. I don't know how it could have rolled there. And the driveway was like super steep, like not 45 degree angles angle, but it was pretty steep, a couple of tenths of a mile uphill. So I'm like, if you're going to play a prank, are you going to carry that rock up there? Are you going to get up there and try to find it? And then also, if you're gonna play a prank, wouldn't you want to make it something more obvious than a rock behind my tire? <laughs> like, wouldn't right. you like put it on my put it on my the hood of my car or something? So I can't say that was Bigfoot, but it was definitely a strange thing Especially for the most part. Noise. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. If it was yeah. just the rock, I'd been like, oh, whatever. But like the fact that I was actually you know invoking this thing, calling it in. <laughs> kind of wonder if there wasn't something else to it no we'll never know maybe it was some missing 411 stuff (laughs) i hope not i hope not like yeah my 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 opinion of the missing 411 stuff has changed over time and i I do see a lot of the criticisms now but a lot of those stories are still pretty strange and they definitely leave me with a sense of dread that i don't get from a lot of other 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 bodies of research that's for sure and it could be anything right like my Mm, big thing about missing 411 is that it's like a paranormal rorschach test right (laughs) so and 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 i say that with complete awareness of the irony that i think it's fairies right (laughs) like like, what does that say about me right I have good reasons for believing that, but yeah, it really is like, it, I think anybody who says that they have the answer to what's going on there is kind of barking up the wrong tree. I don't think we know what it is. I will, I do feel comfortable saying that we would have ascribed the same disappearances to fairies at one point, but does that mm. mean that something that we would call fairies is behind it? I don't, I don't know. Well, Josh, I know you're feeling under the weather. We're not going to keep you all even here, but tell us a bit about your ufology tarot deck. The ufology tarot. Well, my good friend Greg Bishop likes to have these weekly meetings where he and some of his friends sort of get together. And there have been a couple of projects that we've done. It sounds like a cabal when I talk about it this way. <laughs> a couple of a couple of projects that we've done in secret, uh, just just for us, like things for us to collaborate on and work on that we keep as objects to art uh, to get all fancy, but just some things for us to keep and. He felt like it would be interesting to harness the capacity of the tarot through the lens of ufology very specifically ufology because there is a ufo tarot out there that's all about like grays and hybrids and stuff but but our, our goal his goal rather i guess was to use the archetypes of prominent researchers over the years and the roles that they played within the community and the ways that they advanced or in some ways detracted <laughs> from from the field of research and to use those to speak to people you know so it's um it started out as a kickstarter it is unfortunately completed now the the kickstarter funding is the deck is not completed we're just doing the we're just doing the the uh, major arcana right now and we will be doing the minor arcana so maybe people can get on the ground floor of that if you're lucky there might be a couple of decks floating around out there a couple extra ones um <laughs> but it's, it's it is really exciting because i do think that i mean you know i i kind of questioned initially if i should be involved in the project because what i know about terror you can fit inside a thimble but at the same time you know i people i can look at the card meanings and i can say okay well that sounds like this and then look at specific experiencers or specific ufologists and sort of draw upon all that symbolism and what's happening is really cool the, the what i'm what i'm going to be using it for in my personal life is almost this is sort of like a, a physicalized memory palace. So, you know, we think of like the way that Sherlock Holmes has his memory palace and he goes and looks around. That's not really the way that memory palaces traditionally work. They're more about like combining sets of images or ideas and grouping them together. And a lot of these cards do that. So good example, we chose the late researcher Ann Druffle for strength. And in that card are about six or seven different things that are very personal to her that sort of encode what she did for the field and things about her personal life. And now I can just look at that card and have a good sense of kind of who she is, right? Right. Well, the other thing that's really cool about it too is that is that... Miguel Romero, Red Pill Junkie is his uh, handle that he goes by. He's doing all the art for it, and he is being very fastidious about getting very specific references for cards. So the example that I like to use is Whitley Struber is the fool card. <laughs> we, we we arrived at that. We arrived at that with Whitley. He was okay with it, and he has two cats with him. And like the Siamese cat on the card is not just a Siamese cat. That's Ko, 
Like that's his family cat, Co. Like that's what Miguel based it on is a picture of that specific cat. So the the cards are being hyper specific. Like if there are mountains in the background, it's a specific mountain range that Miguel is referencing. Like that sort of granular level of detail, which I think is just really cool. And so it's going to be those. It's also going to be sort of coffee table book with descriptions of some of the symbolism. But what I think is cool about a, a practice like tarot is that you really don't even need to know all the symbolism to get something out of it. Like I think the way that these things work is that if you don't know what the symbols are they sometimes work better right like that's the way that <laughs> magical practice works right yeah so it's it's been really cool and it's been something interesting to, to sort of freshen up what i focus on when i'm not cranking out and finishing <laughs> this, this latest book like i said it's been a pleasure talking to you we don't want to keep you all night and i guess just to wrap up here what is on the horizon what's the what's the next book well the next book i'm calling it a book but it's really it's really two books simply because it's so damn big to put it in perspective a Trojan Feast was 60,000 words. Every book that I've done since then has been about 80,000 words. And it looks like I'm going to be closing in on 250,000 words for this. So, Ooh, yeah, so that's a... yeah, like I'm, I know I would come out with that and people would be like, I'm not reading this damn thing. It's, it's a doorstop, right? It's actually going to be two volumes and a supplemental booklet. Hmm. The plan right now is first volume, second volume, then the third volume is going to be appendices, index, bibliography, and endnotes that will be available online as a PDF or for purchase at cost. I'm not trying to stretch out the profit margin on that one, but it's uh, it's called uh, Ecology of Souls: A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. And what it's hmm. about is there's this famous quote that. Anne Streber said to Whitley after getting a bunch of letters after communion, and she looked at him and she said, this has something to do with what we call death. And you can see why the project's so big, if I'm trying to <laughs> trying to explain that, and you know, mm. because by, by merit of talking about that, you have to talk about near-death experiences and ancient Sumerian concepts of what the soul was and the, 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 the Native American mounds and stone circles and ley lines. And it, it all comes together and it all comes together under the umbrella of this preoccupation with death. And I'm really quite enamored with it right now. Uh, that kind of scares me because I think that a mind made up is a calcified mind and I don't want to be someone who is overly in love with their own pet theory, but I, I think it has a lot of consistency and it's a new way of looking at basically all of all literally literally all of the paranormal being tied to the cycle of life and rebirth and and death that'll be coming out i would imagine april or may the next thing that's getting out there is that uh, collection of fairy essays which i am a contributor and editor awesome well i can't wait to get that doorstopper <laughs> well, <laughs> you say that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the info that we need. That's the no, well, you, you, well, you know, I've been beating myself up about it because, you know, it's 250,000 words. I think Les Mis, Les Miserables is like 555,000 words. So You're almost now. there. I know, right? But like at the same time, you don't, death is such a big topic. And you look at things like Mothman, how that predicted death. And like, you just, you, you can't, it's, it's by, by the very nature of what you're trying to do, it's going to be big. So hopefully people will warm to the idea that, yes it indeed was necessary for for me to write this much on the topic so it's the only thing like that is common in every single pantheon and every single story and everything it is i mean it is it's 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 really startling and then you fold in those stories that i talked about pre-birth memories and reincarnation with alien abductions and it's like well there's that and then there's you know a, a big pivotal thing that the that the project talks about is this idea of psychopomps you know like anubis and hermes these these gods that would lead you over the to the other side and if you just unpack that mythology and that sort of symbolism alone that stuff finds itself into all these topics you know dogman is is like anubis and is also like a werewolf which was like your second self your doppelganger your double you know it just it, it keeps on uh expanding but i'm like a chapter and a half from the end and i'm so close <laughs> oh, shit. that sounds like we're gonna have to have you back on next year <laughs> gladly gladly <laughs> all right josh you have a great night man I hope all right fellas y'all too all right yeah. take care welcome to the night you think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. 
all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.